You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good morning, new song. Welcome. And I am so glad to be back among you. I was here on Father's Day. That was fun. They invited me back, so I'm glad to be here. And, you know, I have a lot of papers up here. Hold on a second. Ah, yes, here we are. Uh, I'm just so honored to be here. I'm, my name is Krista Bontrager. I, am, uh, I work at Reasons to Believe with Dr. Fuzz Rana, if you're familiar with him. And uh, we're, I've been a member at Grace Church of Glendora, just down the street a piece since 1972, but I'm just super honored to be here with friends and family and brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the things I love about being a Christian is that when you find believers, no matter where they are, they're, they're family, right? It's just, it's just all family. And I'm so thrilled to be talking to you today and being part of the conversation your church is having called All In. And this phrase reminds me, I hope it's okay to say this in church, but this reminds me of poker. Uh, my husband uh, used to play quite a lot of online poker, actually, several years ago. And uh, I had to endure watching a lot of poker on ESPN with him. Uh, and so I learned how to appreciate poker and uh, I'm still not sure it belongs on ESPN because I'm not sure poker's a sport, but that's a different conversation entirely. Uh, but I, I like the phrase all in for a sermon series on discipleship because in poker, when you're all in, you're just getting 100% committed to whatever that hand is. You're gonna see it to the end. And that's a lot like our commitment to Christ is that we are putting it all on the line. We're getting 100% committed to Christ and we're pushing in everything of value and we're gonna go all the way. And I think that's actually a pretty brilliant sermon series title. So I'm, I was really excited when your pastor invited me back to be a part of these conversations. And I wanna invite you to turn to John chapter one and we're gonna read through the last half of John chapter one today. And um, I really hope that this will challenge you and uh, push this series along in the spirit of what your pastor is hoping. He left me some instructions. So I'm gonna try to execute those. So we're gonna start in verse 35 of John chapter one. And I'm gonna spend a little bit of time, I always like to take time to actually read the scripture. So I'm gonna start in verse 35. The next day, John was there again, and who we're talking about here is John the Baptist. With John the Baptist was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he said, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him, and it was about four in the afternoon. 
We'll come back and pick up the rest of the chapter there in just a minute. But I want to talk about what's happening here. Because John the Baptist was a cousin of Jesus. And he was also a rabbi of sorts. And he had his own disciples. And so what's happening here in verse 35 is that John the Baptist is out teaching. And he sees Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And this is the second time this has happened. If you peek up a little bit back in verse 30, you can see that John the Baptist, a very similar thing happens. And he actually tells his disciples to look for another rabbi that's coming after him that's even greater than him. And he's kind of preparing his disciples to go study with Jesus. And two of his disciples start doing that. They immediately switch rabbis. They go from Rabbi John the Baptist to Rabbi Jesus. And I want us to understand and appreciate the whole concept of when, they, when it says that they followed Jesus. In just a few minutes here, we're also going to read the phrase where Jesus gives an invitation to some other men, and he says, follow me. Because these words that are so simple are latent with meaning that we might miss if we don't know something about first century Jewish culture. So I wanted to spend a few minutes explaining the relationship of a rabbi and his disciples. Now, the rabbi is the teacher, and it is the process of all good Jewish boys back then that if you come from a good Jewish home, that at age five, you start your education and you start memorizing all five books, the first five books of the Bible. They're called the Torah. And this is what we might call elementary school, and they would call it Beth Safer. And the children would begin to memorize the scripture so that by age 10, they would be able to, to recite by memory the entire first five books of the Bible. It's pretty amazing. And there's a secret to this. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have television. They didn't have all the distractions that we have today. But this was an oral culture, and this is how they processed information. And so we know that the human brain is capable of this much uh, memorization. Uh, then we get to the, the next level of education. But only the best of the best are going to go on to secondary school. This is Beth Midrash School. Only the best students move forward. The rest begin vocational training. They're going to go learn their family business. And, you know, they, they were good as children, but they're not good enough to keep progressing in their education. So they're going to go off to their family business. So that by the age of 15, they can not only recite the first five books of the Bible, but they can also recite the rabbinic interpretations of the entire first five books of the Bible. It's pretty amazing. They would be able to recite all of this information. By age 18, they would be eligible for marriage. And by age 20, all of them would begin their vocational training, except the best of the best. The best of the best, which is a very small number, continue their education and go on to become rabbis so that by age 30, they are able to teach others. 
So this is a little bit like playing Little League here in America. Like almost every child at some point in their life has at least played t-ball for one season, you know? It might not have gone very well, but there was at least one season of, of baseball of some form under their belt. But then only the, the best go on and maybe play Pony League. And, and even a smaller number maybe go on to play college ball. And only a tiny percentage go on to play pro, professional baseball, right? And this is a little bit like that that there was just this gradual weeding out process. Here in America, some children, they don't like baseball. They go off and they find a different sport or a different hobby, whatever it is. But only the best of the best make it all the way through to play professional baseball. Now, when we think about Jesus as following this model, it's interesting. Because at age 12, the book of Luke tells us that Jesus amazed the teachers in Jerusalem with his mastery of scripture. So this shows that he had had a lot of education, just like every other good Jewish boy. But his mastery was unique. That he was, it was almost like they were looking at a child prodigy. You know, where did this kid come from? And he's, he's really amazing the religious teachers. He also has a vocation. He's the carpenter's son. He probably had some skills in that area as well. And then it says in Luke that he began his public ministry at age 30, which would be the normal age of a Jewish rabbi. And these early disciples recognize and call him from the beginning. They call him a rabbi. So there was something about Jesus that they recognized he was a teacher who was able to teach the scriptures with authority. We don't know what his complete educational path was, um, but it certainly seems as though he had some recognition am among his peers of his mastery of the scriptures, and that he had this title of rabbi. And nobody seems to dispute this in scripture. Nobody says, hey, no, you're not. You didn't go through the right educational path. They, he's, he's just consistently called rabbi. So there was some recognition of who he was. Now, what is this business about being a disciple? That's the other half of the coin, is what is a disciple? A disciple is somebody who says the things their rabbi says and does the things their rabbi does. They are imitators of their rabbi. Now, they want to talk like their rabbi. They want to use words like their rabbi. They sit and listen to him teach for hours, and they memorize his sayings and his wisdom, and they, they repeat those things, and they want to sound just like their rabbi, and they want to do the things he does. They even want to dress like him. They want to wear the same clothes as he wears and the same shoes that he wears. They even want to walk behind him the way he walks. And in fact, if you're walking in, 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 the, in line behind your rabbi, the, the most prestigious place to be is right behind him. You want to be the one that's right behind him so that the dust, as, you're, as he's walking, the dust kicks up on your robe as well. That's like a robe you're not washing. You want the dust of your rabbi to show how close you are. You're at the top of your class, that you have the dust of the rabbi on your robe. And... And that's the place of, uh, you're like first in the class. You're the one right behind him. 
And Jesus does many things like other Jewish rabbis. It wasn't unusual to be a rabbi with disciples. That was normal. What was very unusual about Jesus is the things that he said and the things that he did. When he commissions his disciples to go out in Matthew 9 and in Luke 9, he tells them to do four things. He tells them, heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, and preach the gospel. That's how you bring the kingdom of God near. And that's what they were to do, to do the things that Jesus did and to say the things that Jesus said. Those were the things that they did and said. Heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, preach the gospel. Now, what do disciples do? Well, let's take a look at that. Let's continue reading in John chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said. In other words, Andrew was one of John the Baptist's disciples. And he followed Jesus. So he switched sides. He switched to being a disciple of Jesus. The first thing Andrew did... Isn't this interesting? The first thing he did was he went and found his brother, Simon. He tells him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. And both of these words mean rock. Peter would, it was almost a prophetic word that Jesus was pronouncing over Peter, that he would be a rock. And we know from history that he's the one that becomes the foundation for this new kingdom that Jesus is building. The next day, in verse 43, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Peter, or finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. There's that invitation to come be a disciple of Jesus. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, were from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching. He said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. And then he added, very truly I tell you that you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. See, what disciples do is that they invite others to see and hear Jesus. A true disciple is someone who recognizes who Jesus is. They knew he is the Messiah. He was the one that had been promised that would come from the line of David. They knew this. And so what do Andrew and Philip immediately do? They go tell their friends and family. They go tell the people that really matter to them. 
Because when you encounter the, the true Jesus Christ and you get changed, you want to invite others to come see and hear Jesus for themselves. And if you look in this passage, you can see how many times the author uses the word see. And, he, and John does this throughout his gospel. A really fun thing to do would be to read through John's entire gospel and his first epistle, the first letter of 1 John, and just circle how many times it's talking about seeing, hearing, and touching. The Christian faith is a very empirical, sense-oriented faith. It's, it's interesting to notice that what disciples do is that they experience Jesus, they see him, they hear him, and they invite others to come see and hear Jesus too. In fact, this is exactly what happens with the woman at the well, just a few chapters later in John chapter 4. Because, see, Jesus interacts with this, this Samaritan woman at the well, and he not only invites these men to come follow him and be his disciples, he invites this woman with a fairly sketchy background to come be his disciple as well. And I like it because he kind of culturally does everything wrong. He has a conversation in public with a Samaritan woman. She's kind of a different ethnicity. And his disciples aren't real keen on this. But what's interesting is that she then goes to become the first evangelist. She goes home to tell all of her friends and family and then they believe in Jesus. They come and see and hear Jesus for themselves. It says in John chapter 4, we no longer believe just because of what you have said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. See, when you encounter the real Lord Jesus Christ, you don't leave that encounter unchanged. You want to go home and share that with your friends and family. And Jesus is calling his people not into a blind faith, not into a faith without any evidence. He's calling us to come see and hear from him. In fact, in the very next chapter, John chapter 2, is the miracle of Cana. He, he not only says he's the Messiah, then he demonstrates he's the Messiah by turning the water into wine. In John chapter 20, how many of you have ever heard of a person called Doubting Thomas? Doubting Thomas, yes, a very unfortunate name. Because it actually doesn't say anything about him. That name, Doubting Thomas, isn't actually in Scripture. It's just something we've kind of thrown on him. But I love the, the incident with Thomas, this conversation that Jesus has with Thomas, because he doesn't put him down. He doesn't get angry at him that he needs evidence. See, Thomas is a scientist of sorts. He wants evidence. He doesn't want to just take people's word for it that Jesus rose from the dead. He wants to see and to hear it for himself. And Jesus honors that. And so he, he invites him. He says, here, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it in my side. Get the evidence that you need. Come see. Come hear. 
And then he calls him to stop doubting and believe. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus doesn't put us down because we need to see and hear. Rather, that is part of our faith as Christians. Jesus says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. You see, seeing does lead to believing. But how do we see today? We are those people who have not seen and yet believed. I haven't put my hand in Jesus' hand. I haven't put my hand in Jesus' side. But I've read this, these accounts of people who did. And this is why scripture matters, because when I read these things, then it brings life to me. So the invitation today is still to come see and to hear Jesus. We're inviting people to encounter the real Lord Jesus Christ in the pages of scripture so that by believing, they also may have life in his name. Now, who do we invite? Who is it that we want to invite to come see and hear Jesus? Well, this is how I like to think about it. And this is kind of the DNA of our church over at Grace Church of Glendora. And that is that we like to talk about Jesus's oikos strategy. And the word oikos is a Greek word that means household. And your household can be your immediate family, but it can also include your extended family. It can include adopted children. It can include foster children. It could include anyone that's living in your household or people that you have influence over or on. And so this is how we like to say it at our church, is that God has strategically and supernaturally placed 8 to 15 people in your life who need Jesus or need more of Jesus, or maybe they need an invitation to come back to Jesus because they've fallen away. But there are people in your life that God has supernaturally and strategically placed there, and he's saying, these are the people I want you to invite to come see and hear me. And it might be people that you work with. It might be your friends, your neighbors, people you go to school with. It might be people that you're in uh, with hobbies. Hobbies are a great way to meet new people. But it's people that you are connected to, people that you have influence on, people who are part of what we call your oikos. And here's one um, imaginary person. Here's Andy. And Andy has all of these connections with other people, but in each of these spheres, the Lord is working through Andy to reach these people that are in his network, if you will. Well, this is exactly what we saw in scripture. We, we see Andrew immediately goes home and tells his brother John. Philip goes and finds his friend Nathaniel. The Samaritan woman goes back to her village to bring the message of Jesus. These are the people that God has strategically and supernaturally placed in their lives, and then they are the invitation to come see and hear Jesus. But what's also interesting about this passage is that there was a big problem, and we might miss it if we don't know something about the culture. And that is Jesus invites disciples to follow him, 
who are actually unqualified to be following Jesus, to be training under a rabbi. He invites people who skipped over all the education. This is a little bit like taking a person who had only ever played t-ball and putting them in the majors. It's like, that's not how that works. You're skipping all the steps. See, what Jesus should have done was he should have gone to all the local synagogues and talked to the rabbi in charge and said, who are your superstars? I'm going to recruit the superstars from your school, and they're going to, I'm going to enroll them in the Jesus school of supernatural ministry. Yeah, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he goes and he recruits fishermen. He recruits a tax collector. Not even really sure he ever went to the right elementary school. <laughs> he recruits a political radical, somebody who had probably engaged in violence in the name of politics. He recruits people from different ethnic backgrounds. He, re he even allows women to follow him. Okay. He invites people who are technically unqualified to be disciples. And this is why in Acts chapter 4, it says that they were, the, Peter and John were unschooled and ordinary men. It's not that they were stupid. It's just that they'd never gone to seminary. They hadn't gone through the right educational path. And here they were testifying about their rabbi, Jesus. Second point is that Jesus offers a radically inclusive invitation to anyone and everyone to become his disciple. All are invited. Everyone gets an invitation. Now, do you ever get an invitation that you don't respond to? You ever get an invitation that you, you don't, you don't, you're not really interested, that's not really my kind of party. Yeah, but see, Jesus invites everyone, but not everyone shows up. Not everyone accepts the invitation. But when we become a disciple of Jesus, see, we're not inviting people to just come pray a prayer. That's actually not what we're inviting people to. We're not actually just inviting them to convert and say this simple prayer. We're inviting them into a whole new identity. Because when you follow Jesus as your rabbi, you're never going to be the same. Your life is going to get transformed. You're going to want different things. Your desires will change. You might even actually start realizing that some of the things you think are wrong. You might need to change your mind about some things you thought were true, and now you think that might not be true. You might have to love some people that you thought were your political enemies. Can you imagine the campfire at night? Like if it was in a modern situation. You got like Dodger fans and Angel fans, <laughs> Republicans and Democrats, you know, people from different ethnic backgrounds, different races, shady pasts all around the same campfire, and this is who Jesus is going to build the new kingdom on? This is going to be the new people? These people? These, none of these people have been to seminary. 
They don't have the right education. But these are the people that Jesus gathers around him to create a new society. Jesus' radically inclusive invitation includes men, it includes women, it includes the uneducated and the educated. In John chapter 4, Jesus encounters Nicodemus, who is a very educated person. Jesus calls him to be a disciple. It includes the poor and the overlooked, but it also includes the rich and the powerful. All are invited. But the problem that we have today, I think, in the church is that oftentimes when we invite people to encounter Jesus, we're just really inviting them to just add Jesus to whatever they're already doing. You just want to add Jesus to this. Your life's pretty good, but we're just going to add Jesus to it. But that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is a call to an entirely new identity. To invite Jesus to transform your life, transform your thinking, to leave behind your life of sin and walk into something else. So I want to ask you this question today. Is what kind of an invitation are you for people to come and see and hear Jesus? Because you are a living invitation. You're not just inviting people to church. Like you just showing up at your work and living and breathing, or you showing up at school, you are the invitation. Your life is inviting people to something. What kind of party are you inviting them to? Are you lazy at work? Do you spend a lot of time on social media instead of working? What does that communicate to your coworkers about what Christianity looks like? Are you someone who loses your temper and yells at your family on a daily or weekly basis? Are your days consumed with worry about the future? Or are you a person who is so peaceful that people cannot figure you out? Are you so confident that God has got a hold of your future that you just are able to rest peacefully in his presence every day? Are you so ready to love others in their messiness that the amount of love that you have for them is almost confusing for them? What kind of a party, what kind of an invitation are you? Because however your life is showing up, when you extend finally the invitation for them to come to church, they're going to judge the invitation to come to church on what they already know and experience about you. You have already invited them to something just by being there. What hinders you? What prevents you from inviting others? Is it fear of rejection in the relationship? Is it maybe fears that you have that their political alignments are different than yours and you're just afraid to, to, to talk or show love to them? Maybe culturally there's a big divide between where you are and where they are. Maybe racially there's a divide between where you are, where they are. What hinders you from inviting them to come see and hear Jesus? Usually I find it's some version of fear. 
fear of rejection. We have to be willing to be in that risk. I'm pretty sure that Andrew and Philip were in a big risk with their friends and family. Not everyone's going to accept. But Jesus has a plan for some of those people in your life that have been strategically and supernaturally placed there. And Jesus is wanting to partner with you in their journey. So I want to invite the worship team to come back up right now. And on the back of your bulletin, I know there's like a blank space. And I want to invite you to take some time right now. We're going to just take a couple minutes. And I want to invite you to get into a conversation with the Holy Spirit about who are the people in your life that God has strategically and supernaturally placed in your life that he wants to use you to invite them to come see and hear from him. And I want you to write their names down. You can, I have one of these in my Bible that reminds me to pray for my 8 to 15. But if we're going to change the world, if we're going to, I love your community pictures here. Because if we're going to reach these people at Glendora High School, Lone Hill Middle School, downtown Glendora, downtown San Dimas, if we're going to reach those people, we have to be strategic. We have to be thinking about who are the people that God is calling me to. So I want you to take a couple minutes right now. Ask the Lord to bring some people to your mind. Write them down. It might be your children. That's a great place to start. It might be a coworker that's been open to a conversation. And now I want you to ask the Lord, who are the difficult people? Who are the challenging people that the Lord's bringing to your mind that you need to start sowing into some prayers? about them. Write them down. Now I want to invite you as well. There's going to be some prayer counselors around the room. Maybe you just want to go ask, partner with somebody else to ask the Lord for some courage to get into some deeper conversations with people. Maybe you have a prayer need. You can do Talk to someone. You can go to the prayer wall in the back. There's the virtual prayer wall on the website. But take a few minutes right now to get into a conversation with the Lord about who he has strategically and supernaturally placed in your life. 